August 28th, 1963, some 100 years after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation freeing the slaves, Martin Luther King Jr. climbed the marble steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. to communicate his vision for America. On that day, more than 200,000 people were there, both black and white. And they came by plane and by car and by bus and by train and by foot. They came to Washington with one goal, to demand equal rights for black people. Martin Luther King's call ultimately was a call for white people to see black people differently, to see them more deeply In his I Have a Dream speech, he states, or he starts out, I should say, by calling America to see black people differently on a national level. And he does so by talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. He refers to the Declaration of Independence. And he does that so that those who are listening would embrace his vision, or as he calls it, to make real the promise of democracy. But as I read the speech, and I have many times, I read it again this week, I think the most powerful words of persuasion that he uses comes when he moves from talking about seeing people differently on a national level to seeing them differently on a personal level. And he talks about, and I quote, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners being able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And then he gets as personal as he possibly can. And he makes a comment about his own life when he says, I have a dream. And now the I that he says is not just representing hundreds of thousands of people, but he's talking about his own life. He says, I have a dream, not an abstract dream, but one I want to see touch even my own life and family. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying this nation needs to change in how they see people. See, his desire was that we would see black people as much deeper than this color of their skin, but ultimately we look deep enough to see them as equals. Oh, people would be able to see deeper. Their color would not be all they saw, but their character, he says. I think if you asked Martin Luther King Jr., he would say that how you see people will determine how you treat people, and I think he'd experienced it. See, if you don't see people rightly, you will treat people wrongly. About 2,000 years before Martin Luther King There was a man who did not walk up marble steps, but rather dirty road to Calvary. It was the greatest emancipation proclamation that was ever written, and it wasn't written by a president with ink. It was written by our Savior with his blood. See, he was calling people that day. He was calling Christians to see people differently, to see people more deeply, and even more deeply than MLK 
See, Jesus says, look below the skin color, look below their character even, look to the core of them. And when you do, you will see this, you will see people as sinners because you see yourself that way. You will see people who need to be freed from the worst slavery of all time, sin. And I want to connect today those things together. I want you to see what happened to Zacchaeus in Jericho is connected to what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. I want you to see and connect today that how the first conquest of Jericho, the first Joshua, was all about tearing down physical walls. But the second conquest of Jericho and Canaan was by the second Joshua, the greater one. He didn't tear down physical walls. He tore down social walls and most of all, spiritual walls. And when we learn to see like he did, we too will be involved in that same enterprise. I said last week, and I want to repeat it this week, gospelizers have gospel eyes. And I asked questions last week, and I want to repeat them. How do you see sinners, people who don't know Christ? Do you see sinners, Luke would ask today from our text, do you see them with the eyes of the crowd, or do you see them with the eyes of the Christ? Because they are worlds apart. Luke has two sinner stories. We looked at the one last week. It was a woman sinner, and this week is a man sinner. And you know him very well. We've had stories ever since childhood. If you've been raised in church, we know about Zacchaeus. But I want you to see him, first of all, with Christ's eyes. And then we're going to contrast that with how the crowd saw Zacchaeus. So let's unpack and do them one at a time. In our text, if you look there, the seeing verbs are dominant. It's obvious what Luke's after. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 2, he frames it with verse 2 and verse 8 by using the same word. And that word is behold. And it means to look at, to see, but not just a glance. No, he wants you to look in such an intent way that it gets your attention, that it moves you, that works in you. So 9, 2 and 9, 8 bracket the whole text with behold. And in between are a myriad of verbal words about seeing. Verse 3, he was seeking to see Jesus. Both words, seeking and see, are visual. Verse 4, he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Verse 5, Jesus got to the sycamore tree and he saw Zacchaeus. He looked up, it says. Verse 7, but when the crowd saw it, they grumbled. And of course, the last one, the bracket, verse 8, is behold. See, it's no doubt, if you read this text, that Luke wants us to see Zacchaeus. We're going to see him how everyone else sees him first. He's going to give descriptions of him. And as he's doing it, he wants to brace you and prepare you because you're going to learn today to see Zacchaeus differently. But here's how everyone else saw him. Can you look in the text? There was a man named Zacchaeus. And by the way, Zacchaeus means like Zechariah or any, it means righteous one. But when you look at him, he's anything but righteous. Look at the description. He was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief one. He ran everybody's business. He was the regional manager. He was over everybody else. And you have to understand, in the first century, to be a tax collector was to be a traitor to Israel. You are a traitor to your people. Because you worked for Rome, and everybody knew it. He was the big boss man, Zacchaeus was. 
He was the child that no parent wanted to have. You didn't want your, par- your child growing up to be a tax collector. The Pharisees, the religious elite, used to say this. The three worst things in the world were prostitutes, tax collectors, and Gentiles. He was in the top three worst professions that you could possibly be in. And on top of it all, to make it worse, he was rich in doing it. He exploited other people, took advantage of being a tax collector. And the Bible says because of it, he grew rich off of it. And while most of the people around him who were faithful to Israel and faithful to God were poor, he stood out like a sore thumb because he did what wasn't acceptable and was rich by it. If you read Luke's gospel, you'll find very quickly that there are so many stories about rich people and virtually, virtually, other than one or two, They are looked on unfavorably, mainly because of how rich people see everybody else and how they use everybody else. That's how everybody saw Zacchaeus. Nobody wanted to be the friend of Zacchaeus. The only friends he could ever have were tax collectors themselves. The Bible says he's the chief tax collector. He was a rich tax collector, but there's a social label that the text puts on him in verse 7. Can you see it? Everyone's grumbling when Jesus has lunch with Zacchaeus. And the reason is because he was a sinner. And sinner, like I said last week, does not just theologically mean that he'd done a lot of bad things, although that was true. It was a social label. It was an identity marker. It was to let everybody know that Zacchaeus, he didn't fit in with everybody because he was unclean. Ethically, morally, he was a failure. He was an outcast. Everybody looked down on Zacchaeus. And that's why I think perhaps Luke throw in this last little description of him. It says in verse 3 that he was small in stature. And you wonder, why does that matter? Who cares how tall he was? There is actually a um, research that has been done in a study on the graves of men and women in the first century when Jesus and Zacchaeus lived. They Look at the skeletal structure of the average man and woman. And in Jesus' day, the average man was only five foot three. Does it kind of blow your way that Jesus may be smaller than some of us? That's kind of strange. Women were an average of four, ten, or eleven. So if Zacchaeus is small, he may have only been about four foot six. Can you imagine running down the road to the sycamore tree? That would have been kind of, right? But I don't think he put it in there just so you would know how tall he was. I think it's for you to understand that that's the summary of all the other ones. See, everyone literally and metaphorically looked down on Zacchaeus. He wasn't just small of stature. He was small in every possible way that mattered in his society and culture. He was small in value. He was unimportant. His testimony wasn't liable in a court. He looked down. There was no penalty for hurting tax collectors. In every possible way, Zacchaeus was small. That's how everyone saw him. He was the money man, the microman. But would people see him as the mistreated man? Would they see Zacchaeus for more than that? See, everyone wanted to keep their distance from Zacchaeus. Everyone but Jesus, that is. I was taught by one of my mentors growing up, and, and in his 
discipleship of me, he gave me this statement, and I've never forgotten it. He says, where you stand on the mountain will determine how you see the valley. Where you stand on the mountain will determine how you see the valley. See, where you stand not only determines how you see valleys, but how you see people. See, where you stand will determine how or what you see people to be. See, Jesus stood in a different place when it came to seeing Zacchaeus. Well, everyone else stood and saw Zacchaeus one way, but Jesus stood differently. He stood in the place of God. He stood where Zacchaeus was different than everyone else. See, there are two stories, in our stories last week and this week, there are two parallel statements. The one that leads up to, I should say, in chapter 18 and then in this chapter. Jesus incurs a relationship or an encounter with a blind man. And when he's about to heal him, it says this in verse 40 of chapter 18, command him to be brought to me. And when he had come near, in other words, when Jesus healed people, talked to people, he got close to people. He says, bring him near. Now, you know, blind people were unclean and you weren't supposed to let them touch you. You weren't supposed to let them uh, be near you at all. Remember last week, the woman is touching Jesus. He's, she's putting her hair on him. She's doing stuff to his feet. And everyone's mad because you shouldn't let people like that get close. But even in this story, it says in chapter 19, verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, and the little phrase, the place, is used five times in Luke, and it does not mean generically someplace. It's always referring to a very, very specific place. It's used of Jesus in Gethsemane, exactly where that was. It's to the place of the skull when he was crucified. They came to the place. Jesus intentionally, purposely stopped, as what they say today in Jericho, in modern Jericho, the Zacchaeus tree. It's not the same one, but it's one like it. It was a large tree with very spread out branches, low to the ground. Zacchaeus was up in the tree, but he didn't have to get far up in it because he was small. He just wanted to see Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no. I want you to get closer to me than that. I want, you to, I want to see you for who you really are. I want to show people what's really inside of you. For his book entitled Machete Season, the French journalist Jean Hatsfield interviewed people who participated in the Rwanda genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsi. He spoke to one man who had murdered his neighbor, the man who had lived next to him for many years. He asked him, how did that happen? Why did you do that? And the man said this. He said, at that fatal instant, I did not see him for who he had been before all those years. The man recalled his neighbor's face became blurry in the seconds before I picked up the machete and killed him. His features were indeed similar to that person that I had known for so many years, my neighbor. But nothing firmly reminded me that I had lived beside him for a long time. I never really saw him. How many people do you walk by? How many people do you live by? How many neighbors next door to you for years, years, 
and you never see them. Their face blurry to you because you, all you see them is someone to have a casual conversation once in a while with. You don't see them for who they really are. You see, Zacchaeus' face was not blurry to Jesus on that day. But Jesus closed to, chose to get up close to him. The crowd didn't want him nearby, so he ran ahead so no one would know where he was. See, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but you know how it works in the Bible? That he thought he was the initiator, but really Jesus had already planned to stop and see Zacchaeus way before Zacchaeus wanted to see him. That's how it works in Scripture. Have you ever invited someone to church? I, I like to hear more about Jesus. Maybe they're going through a tough time. They're really suffering, a lot of struggles. And maybe, perhaps, that's why you're here today. You've tried this, and you've tried this, and you said, well, you know, let me go to church and see Jesus. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe something I can get out of it. And when people end up, at times, giving their life to Christ, they end up realizing this. Oh, you know, I thought I was seeking Jesus, but the truthfully, he was seeking me. Before I ever came to him, he was seeking me. Oh, see, Jesus didn't see Zacchaeus primarily in a social way. He didn't see him as just the chief tax collector. He didn't see him as a man getting rich off of other people's backs, although that was true. He didn't see Zacchaeus as just a social outcast. He didn't just put a label on him and say sinner and say, therefore, I have nothing to do with you. He didn't just see him as some short man that didn't measure up in every area of his life. Rather, he saw him later on the text in verse 9, that he was also a son of Abraham. Oh, the thing that he turned his back on, his upbringing, his roots, his identity as an Israelite, he had turned his back on all of that. And Jesus says, I still see you, who you really are, the son of Abraham. And Jesus says, you know why, Zacchaeus, I have to stay at your house? Because I came to save sinners like you. Oh, you see, the first Joshua came, and he tore down stone walls, and he came to destroy people who were false worshipers. But the second Yahshua, the second jo- Joshua, he comes in the conquest of Canaan. He stops first at Jericho, but not to tear down walls of stone, but walls of sin and differences between people. He came not to destroy false worshipers, but to seek true worshipers. And that's what Zacchaeus becomes. Although no one would have ever thought by looking at him that here would be someone that Jesus chose to worship him. Pastor Walker, why is this so important? I can tell you this. Because seeing is connected to seeking in the text. See, seeing precedes seeking. I will tell you this morning, no seeing, there will be no seeking No seeing, no seeking, no saving. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, come on down, hurry. I must stay at your house today. Follow the word must all the way through Luke's gospel. And you'll see that Jesus is on a mission of must. John 4, he says this, I must go through Samaria. He had to because Jesus was seeing and seeking sinners. And it moved him. You see, what? Controls your eyes, controls your feet. No one went to Samaria. No one had lunch with a tax collector. Jesus did because he was on a mission of must. And his 
eyes controlled his feet, where they went, who they went with. Jesus was first and foremost a soul seer, then a soul seeker, and then a soul savior. So let me ask you straight out. Who are you seeking? Are you seeking anyone as a Christian? Are you seeking anyone to befriend, anyone to build a platform for the gospel, anyone that you're giving the gospel to? And I would tell you this, if there is no seeking, it's because there is no seeing in your life. You're not seeing people as Jesus sees them. You don't see your neighbors. Their faces are blurry to you. You have forgotten about the real need of your family members and friends and co-workers. Brandon Heath wrote a song a number of years ago, Give Me Your Eyes. And he talks in the first verse of that song about just a normal situation that he walks down the street. He says, stepped out on a busy street, see a girl and our eyes meet. Does her best to smile at me to hide what's underneath. There's a man just to her right, black suit and a bright red tie, too ashamed to tell his wife He's out of work. He's just buying time. All those people going somewhere. Listen, he says, why have I never cared? Then he says this, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Do you see what the songwriter does? He connects seeing to caring. Seeing to loving. If you want Jesus' arms that would embrace people that no one else would, you know what he says? Let me see first. Because if I see That'll be connect me to your arms. He says, see, the ones that are forgotten, give me your heart. See, seeing is connected to loving. It's connected to holding. It's connected to embracing. It's connected to having Jesus' heart. It all starts with gospel eyes. Every bit of it. And he bemoans this fact. Maybe you do this morning. He says, I've been there a million times, a couple million lives, just moving Pass me by. And he says that I swear I never thought I was doing anything wrong. He was blind. All those people, all those years, pass him by and he never sought them because he never saw them. But he says, I want a second glance. So give me a second chance to see the way you see the people all along. Oh, I got to tell you this morning, Christian, God's here to give you a second chance, a second glance, to say, Jesus, give me your eyes. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see all the things I have been missing. Give me your love for humanity. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. Both of our episodes last week and this week are about house stories. They're about Showing hospitality, welcoming people in. It was big in the ancient Near East, even bigger than today. Simon welcomed Jesus in, but he really didn't. The woman had to do all the 
responsibilities of the host. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, far different. He welcomes Jesus in, and they want you to know, Luke says, I want you to know just the difference because it says Zacchaeus received him joyfully, it says. You know what the difference was? Because Zacchaeus saw himself as spiritually needy, that he needed Jesus in his house. So Simon really didn't. He thought he was doing Jesus a favor. Well, see, Jesus longs to bring his heavenly, holy hospitality to people. But most people, like Simon, they refuse. It's not until you get close to people, sinners, like Zacchaeus, to find out who will really welcome you into their life. And there might be some of you here today, you say, oh, Pastor Walker, hey, I may have done something wrong, but hey, you know, I'm not that bad. See, our world is filled with Simons who think they're superior and better than Zacchaeus's. But Zacchaeus, the difference is he saw Jesus differently. He saw Jesus deeply, and the result of seeing Jesus deeply, it changed his life. And it all started with Jesus seeing him deeply. The normal protocol would be as Jesus walks through Jericho, and there was two parts of the city. There was the old Jericho that had been there for hundreds of years, and there was the new Jericho that was being erected. And as he walks between the two cities, the idea would have been that a whole crowd would have gathered when he started walking through Jericho. They would have walked him all the way through, and the rich people, including the religious elite, would be in the new part of Jericho. And he would stop, and everyone would talk to him, and he would be the you know, favorite of everyone walking through Jericho. And then he would sit and have lunch, and a very big lunch, and people would watch them eat and listen to him talk, and Jesus would be the, the, you know, the guest of the day. Jesus shocks everyone. In the middle, as he walks through with a parade of crowd of people around him, he doesn't get through the other end of town and get the luxury lunch with the great elite religious people of his day. Oh, he stops. He does something completely unexpected. He looks up into a sycamore tree and says, I'm not going to their house today. I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. I have to stay at your house You see, you know that you see sinners like Jesus when you spend time with sinners like Jesus. Jesus went out of his way to be with sinners. If you read Luke's gospel, there are house stories all through it. In chapter 4, Peter's mother-in-law is healed when Jesus comes to her house. In chapter 5... Jesus has dinner with Levi or Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew who is a tax collector as well. In fact, Jesus, his whole public ministry is bracketed with two episodes of eating with tax collectors. Chapter 5 with Levi and chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. It really summed up what Jesus was trying to do, call sinners to repentance. Chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee. But it's really about the woman that Jesus ministers to in the house. He healed Jairus' daughter in the house. He went to the ruler of a Pharisee's house in chapter 14. He has the last supper where he treats Judas far better than he ever should have in a house. Because Luke says this, great things happen in people's lives when you invite Jesus into the house. Rosaria Butterfield, I don't know if you know who she is. But she was, for the, most of her adult life, she was a lesbian. She worked at a secular university, was highly thought of in literature. And she did not believe in God or Christ or anything until she met Pastor Ken Smith. Pastor Smith introduced himself to Rosaria Butterfield and invited her over to his house. 
she said she didn't know why in the end, but she went. And they made her feel welcome. And they had dinner with her and they talked with her. He said, and they didn't really even give me the gospel up front. She said, they just cared about me. And they did this not two times or three times, but once a week for two years. She said, it changed my life. These people cared about me, loved me, helped me, talked with me unconditionally. She became a Christian because of it. She's writing books, an influential speaker all around the country and perhaps even the world. And the difference was that she went to someone's house and saw Jesus. I believe this. When God opens your eyes to sinners, he'll also open your house to sinners. Dinner for eight. That's part of our theme this year. We could do that, can't we? We could have Christian couples over with a couple of lost people, couples who are not there as well, who are there. We could give them the gospel because we want to know that we see them. We see them. They're just like us. We have them over for dinner. See, that's what it's about. That's what the gospel is. When you see people, it'll open your hearts. It'll open your wallets. It will open your house because it's opened your heart. But there's a second way, and I close with this. There's seeing people like Christ sees them, and there's seeing people like the crowd sees them. Verse 7 says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the house of or a guest of a man who is a sinner. Oh, the word grumbled, it's used six times in the Old Testament. And every single time, it talks about Israel grumbling against their leader, Moses. And they didn't like this, and they didn't want this, and they didn't like how he did this. And it doesn't change its usage in the New Testament. Three times it's used in the Gospel of Luke. All three of them are people grumbling about Jesus having contact with sinners. Prostitutes, tax, tax collectors, they, all three times, including our text, they grumble about it. See, Luke wants to say to you today, look at the two. See how Christ sees sinners, how the crowd sees sinners. And here's the question. Are you a grumbler or a gospelizer? See, that's the real question. Grumblers are groaners. It's a word that has a literally a tone of voice with it. It's like you don't say it out loud so much, but you're kind of like, you kind of make those noises. It's kind of like, remember Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny? He didn't like Bugs Bunny. Remember that? Oh, see, we wouldn't quite do it like that. But that's what they did on that day. You know why? Because grumblers are people who on the inside judge others without seeing what is in their own hearts. You know why the crowd grumbled that Jesus went with Zacchaeus? Because Jesus was here, Zacchaeus was there, and they were up here. So Zacchaeus, you have so much wrong in your life. You're such a failure. You're such this and that. And they grumbled about it. They didn't like it because they thought that Jesus should eat with them that day. Oh, see, it's an attitude. It's not just a sin to avoid. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of your heart that leads to doing wrong to others, whether it's verbal with criticism or whether it's actions with condemnation. You see, grumblers don't see Jesus right and they don't see sinners right because they don't see themselves right. I have. 
in the last two years, I have seen so many Christians and talking even with them that they grumble about everything in our culture. How bad our world is today. And it is. They grumble about politicians on either side of the fence. They grumble about the moral decline in our society, sexual deviance at an all-time high, according to some, perversions, divisive racism, how awful public schools have become, and how our culture has dismissed God, taken out the Ten Commandments, legalization of marijuana, transgenderism on the high, collapse of biblical values, and all of those things and many more. And they complain about them. And their whole focus is on how bad it is out there. I hardly ever hear anyone tell me about how bad it is in here. In here. I wonder if we don't see things as we should. Are we grumbling against our culture because we see ourselves as superior? That we're really more righteous? That somehow... The dose of grace that we needed was far less. (laughs) Are we at war with our culture without being witnesses to our culture? Do we think anymore that the greater the darkness, the greater the light? Do we still believe that Jesus says to you, be salt and light in the world? Do we still believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that it can really change anyone, oh, including you? Are we always, is all we think about is just Jesus coming back to take us to heaven? Or are we also thinking about how we could take other people with us? Do we run away from the darkness when Jesus ran to it? Do we even know any tax collectors or sinners, much less spend time with them, much less have them in our home? Do we even know any? Oh, maybe, just maybe, we should do some Less grumbling and more gospelizing. Oh, Jesus said, and I close, two parallel statements. Chapter 19, verse 5, he says, I must stay at your house. And in verse 9 says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. Do you see the parallel? Jesus is the salvation. He is. Do you know what your neighbors need? They need to come into your house and find Jesus. He's what they need. Not social reform, not behavioral therapy. They need a wholesale life change. They need Jesus. Will you take them and show them who he really is? Oh, you see, this little story sits in what's called the travel narrative, Luke 9 through 19 meaning every story in this section should be shown or be seen this way on the way to Jesus dying on the cross. I like to think that that Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus in light of Jesus climbing a different tree, a tree at Calvary, to save Zacchaeus. I think they're connected. I think the gospel writer wants us to see That the real way you see Jesus is not when you're up a tree, but when he's on the tree. See, that's how you should see them. Do you see people who are lost through the lens of the cross? It will determine whether you are a gospelizer or a grumbler. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, give us a second chance by giving us a second glance to see the people the way you've seen them all along. Heal our blindness. And we never see lost people with blurry faces. But may today, by your grace, may we see the grace that you've given to us, forgiving us of our sin, that the grumbling would stop and the gospelizing would start. And you'd start by giving us new eyes, eyes that are connected to your feet, to your arms and hands, and most of all, to your heart. Make that connection, O Lord, today, and may it never be disconnected that your house might be filled with people from the nations who you desire to make worshipers of your glory. And may our houses be filled with people around our tables because they're attracted to us, because they're attracted to you. And may that end up in the salvation of many who would give you glory. And we'll thank you for this rich blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.